G'day everyone, this is Rita Joyan and welcome to the Unbox Your Gift podcast. How to turn a passion, something that you've always loved to do, into an everyday occurrence called a profession. And my, my, my guest today is someone who, you know, throughout the podcast, I've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs who have taken a passion and turned it into an entrepreneurial venture. My guest today is an intrapreneur. Here's the gentleman who has taken a passion that he loves, public policy, government life, and turned that into a career, a thriving career. I mean, he's had many different high profile professions, chancellor of a university, high commissioner, chairman. And if you're, listen, if you're interested to becoming anything like that, keep listening. My guest today is Alan Hawke, who happens to be, if you're in a Canberra, this is gonna mean something, the great, great grandson of Joseph Blundell and Susan Osborne. So if you're outside of Canberra, don't worry, I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> Alan joined the Commonwealth Public Service in 1974, rising in the ranks to De Department Secretary, Strategy and Intelligence in Defence, and then Department Secretary in the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. He was Chief of Staff to Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating in 93-94, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Secretary and Transport and Regional Services and Secretary of Defence. Okay, doesn't stop there. High Commissioner to New Zealand, after which he retired to become the Australian National University Chancellor. He's received the Centenary Medal, which is an award bestowed on people considered to have contributed to Australian society and government. Allen's received the highest civilian honour when appointed as companion in the General Division of the Order of Australia in the Queen's Birthday List for eminent service to public administration. I'm going to keep going. doesn't stop there, people. Allen is one of 25 eminent Australians on the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia Leadership Council. His other current appointments include Chairman of the Canberra Raiders, which is an Australian rugby football club, and chairman of the Canberra University Campus Development Joint Venture. He's also chairman of Trusted Systems and Solutions and president of ACT Bernardo's. <laughs> Alan struggles with golf and writes about family history and Australian leadership, as well as coaching and mentoring. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Fred. Lovely to be with you. It's fantastic to have you here. And by the way, guys, I had to shorten his... Uh, Alan's bio because it's a lot more than that that he's done and it's in one lifetime and he's still a young man still going great guns. <laughs> now Alan I begin every interview uh, with asking my guests because you've had such a fantastic career and you continue to have such a fantastic career share with us a major failure that allows us to get to know you more of the inside the human side of Alan. Okay um, I'll come to that but the the most important thing about failures, and I've had a lot of them, is you have to, what you learn from that and how you handle uh, situations in the future that, that might allow you to relate back to that. And my first failure was in, uh, first, the biggest failure was in 1966 uh, when I was at the Australian National University in first year. And I, at the end of the year, I failed three out of the four subjects. So I thought, well, that's the end of it. I was on a a scholarship to go there. And uh, uh, I went home and explained this to my great aunt who lived with us, who had an enormous influence on me over my life. And she said, well, what's the issue? And I said, well, I, I won't be able to go on. Yes, you will. She said, yes, you will. 
And so I went and got part-time jobs, etc., to fund myself through. I rationalised that failure because um, I was the last of what was called the leaving certificate uh, at high school, which is a five-year. And then after that, they introduced the six-year Wyndham scheme. So little did I realise when I started uni, there would be no grant, no people leaving school to go to university in 1967. And I, and I think that's why there was such a high failure rate uh, in all universities uh, in that year, 1966. Uh, but I'll tell you now, I, I never had a pass mark <laughs> after that year. Never had a pass mark. Most of them were distinctions or high distinctions uh, with a few credits thrown in along the way. And uh, at the end of the, that longer period than normal, four years instead of three years, I was invited to do uh, an honours degree, which I did, and then went on and did a PhD. Love it. So how is it that in that moment, when you did lost your scholarship and you had to go work and fund university yourself, was that the fact that you were funding it, which motivated you to do more, be more conscientious in your studies? I think my aunt left me in no doubt <laughs> about what I would be doing. Oh. And uh, I wouldn't have challenged. I lived with my great aunt for peculiar reasons for about five years. Uh, when her husband died, she sold uh, her house and quite a bit of property and built two rooms on the back of, the, of, the, of our, my parents' house. And uh, we lived uh, there with the whole family. Uh, and and uh, I continued to live there until uh, I got married at the relatively young age of 27, I think it was. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. Okay. So now you've had many brilliant, I mean, Chancellor, um, You've been chairman, you have been an ambassador, chief of staff to Australian prime minister. I mean, like I said, in one lifetime, I mean, I found out about you, Alan. I read an article about you and that you had written a book. And I, and I just looked, look at your history of, of career and I just thought, I mean, these are prestigious, high profile positions that people would, would work for, for one of those positions in one lifetime. And yet you've gained them in one lifetime, all five of those. So, can you tell me, the, if we go back a bit, the first thing that you've mentioned is you were secretary and then you were secretary to, if I'm going back, Veterans Affairs, Secretary of Transport and Regional Services and Secretary of Defence. Now, obviously, they happened in different timings. How did you get in the position of becoming a secretary? And first of all, well, what is a secretary? What is the position of a secretary? Well, that's the Chief Executive Officer of the department, basically. Okay. Uh, that's like a CEO, oh. except that in... in you, you mainly don't have a board. The board actually is the political apparatus that sits above it. Mm -hmm. So if you like, your minister would be a member of the board and the cabinet would be the board with the prime minister chairing it. But um, so let me go back to, uh, uh, I, after I finished my honours degree in 1970, uh, CSIRA then paid for me to do a PhD. Mm. And, and I was two years into my PhD when I, friend of mine that I'd gone through university said to me, um, Alan, um, you might want to think about whether you take a gap year and go and do this program that the public services offering, offering, a graduate entry program for 12 months. It was called the Administrative Trainee Scheme. And I thought, oh, well, um, if Reuben's telling me that, I'll have a go at that. So I got in, there was um, 3,000 applicants and they took 30 people. Wow. So I got in, I might've got in because the person who was running the program used to swim at the Dixon swimming pool where I was the 
lifeguard and the coach, but I got in. And so, and I was thinking, I'll take 12 months off, I'll do this, I'll continue to do my PhD at weekends and at nights, uh, and then I'll go back. But at the end of that 12 months in 1974, uh, I decided that I really liked um, the work that was doing and I uh, got a significant promotion. Uh, I was on the threshold of getting married. And so uh, I thought, well, no, uh, I'll just leave here and uh, go and do that. And my wife said to me, well, you will finish your PhD, whether you like it or not. And she wasn't my wife then. <laughs> um, and I did finish my PhD part-time. But I, I learnt two fundamental things in that first year. One of them was told to me on my first day on the job when they had these 30 graduates with all of these old grey hairs, eminent people, um, uh, to have a drink with the uh, young graduates. And of course I was uh, trying to be uh, merged into the wallflower. Um, wallpaper on the side of the room mm -hmm. and this old chap came over to me and introduced himself and explained who he was and he said Alan I'll give you one piece of advice whatever you do wherever you go you'll be offered lots of opportunities in, in making a critical decision about which one you're going to take look very carefully at who you'll be working for and who that person's boss is mm -hmm. And if you think you can learn things from them, that might be the distinguishing factor by why you take that job and not another job. And I developed the philosophy during that uh, first year of treating every job I had. That first year we had three different, I had three different four months rotations. Treat every job as if it's the best job you've ever had in the world and work really hard. Mm. And if you can figure out what your boss wants you to deliver, we might come back to that, and start delivering that, not only does your boss take a very healthy interest in you, but their boss is often watching over the shoulder. Mm. And everybody will have heard of these people called mentors. Mm -hmm. And I had a few of those. But a lot of people don't know about sponsors. These are people who may not be in your direct chain of command, but who are watching you and what you're doing and how you're doing it and the results you're achieving. And they have an extraordinary influence on your career because they talk to other people. Do you know about this young person? Have you thought about taking them? And that's played, played uh, a pretty significant part in my life as well. That's very interesting. So when you talk about, and I love that strategy of, not even a strategy, but just an outlook of making sure that looking at who you're going to report to and then who that person you're reporting to reports to. Yep. When, when you look at doing an outstanding job, are you talking about work that allows that boss to be shine, be able to shine or work that oh, makes yeah. Yeah? Yes, yes, as well as yourself. Uh, because if they shine, you shine. Mm. And one of the little tricks of the trade I developed along the way, when I started off, um, they had this thing called duty statements, which were full of um, words and didn't mean much. And so uh, I eventually got around to writing, you know, what, what was the purpose of this job? What are we trying to fix here? Why do we exist? Why is the most important question? Why are we here? 
And I would write it out on one page, you're only allowed one page, and I'd go to my boss and I'd say, this is what I think I'm here to do for our section or us or whatever. And I'd go through with the boss and sometimes they'd make a few changes. Sometimes they'd say, yeah, that's pretty much it. And then at least once a month, I would go back and check with the boss. How do you think I'm going? What do you think I can do differently? What can I learn to be a better contributor? Did, did someone teach you to do that back in the early days? No, I, I just tweaked on it. Okay, that's wonderful. Yeah, I've, I've only, there is one thing that I stand by and uh, I, I'm a, I don't know how many thousand books I've read on leadership mm. and most of them are rubbish. There's only two genuine gurus of leadership and management. The first one people may have heard about, and his name's Peter Drucker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Drucker wrote a book, wonderful book, called Management Challenges for the 21st Century. Mm -hmm. And you can read that. And if you do, you have to say to yourself, how on earth in 1995 did he know what the issues confronting the world in 2020 would be? but he did. That's not why I want them to read it. The last chapter of Drucker's book distills everything he learned over his long career about management and leadership. But most importantly, it explains to you as an individual how you can make a difference, the job that you are there to do, and he's the only person I've ever seen who writes here the secret of managing your boss. I'm not going to reveal it. If people want to know the secret of managing your boss, get hold of that chapter. Now, the second guru, you won't believe this. Her name was Mary Parker Follett. She was what was called a Brahmin Boston. In other words, she came from a very high-class Boston uh, society, family. She was a teacher at Harvard. So woman gets better, lesbian. Her partner uh, was, was a high-class um, English woman. Mm -hmm. And she really, almost all the ideas that are around today have their origin in what Mary Parker Follett wrote about leadership in 1890. Really? Yep. I've never heard of her, Mary. I'm just writing her no, name. No, nobody's ever heard of her. And how did you find out about Mary Parker? Oh, well, no, I don't mean this, but Drucker's wife told me. Oh, right. So you met Peter Drucker? No, but I, I did a few things with his wife. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, so the two books that you've recommended are Peter Drucker's Challenges of Management, is that correct? Management Challenges for the 21st Century. Management Challenges for the 21st Century and Mary Parker's work. And was there a book Mary that... Parker Follett. Mary Parker Follett. Follett. F-O-L-L-E-T-T. Ah. Okay, fantastic. And was there a particular book that she had written? You won't find one. But there is one called, I think, The Genuine Prophet of Management. The Genuine... Which is about her. And, and what she did. Right. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing those. So you've joined the public service. You went into an intern. Now, by the way, what did you do your PhD in? Oh, genetics. Genetics. Wow. Yes. That's right. Um, I never practiced it because I, I was having such a good time where I was. Uh, if I'd have gone down that path, one of the people in my class who was further down the ranks than I was, was a black called John Shine, mm. who is world famous in genetics. Wonderful black, absolutely wonderful. Uh, anyway, I would have gone on, on to CSIRA. They were paying me to do a PhD. And then in those days in CSIRO, you had to wait till someone died and everybody moved up one peg on. It's not like that now, but that's what it was like. So I was thinking, well, I, I can do that and that'll be okay, but um, I'm having such a good time doing this and enjoying it. I'm about to get married. Um, there's, there's more opportunity for me here uh, than if I go there. So, and that's why I did finish my PhD, but that's why I stayed in the uh, public service for 32 years. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you one other thing. Yeah. 32 years in the public service, I wouldn't give it give a, a day away of that. But in the 10 years after I left the public service, I put more money in the bank working in the private sector than in the 32 years in the public service. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, 100%, 100%. I'm gonna talk more about that with you. If we can look at into the, in terms of the, you've gone into the public service and then you just worked your way, you read these books on management, how to be able to really highlight your boss's work by yeah. on your own and then that boss's sponsorships, looking to see who's looking at you. And then is that how you became the position within the positions of Deputy Secretary Strategy Intelligence, uh, DepSec in the Department of Prime Minister Cabinet? <coughs> well, yes, it's because people will, are watching you mm -hmm. and you're not always conscious of it. <clears throat> so I think I only applied for maybe one or two jobs <clears throat> in my career. Wow. I am that. Uh, people would say, look, there's, there's, I'll give you a good example. When I was, uh, I worked uh, for Sir William Cole, who was the chairman of the Public Service Board, and uh, <clears throat> I have to get this right now. In, uh, in, oh, so I'll go back one. So I'm in the pub, Central Personnel Authority, the Public Service Board. In about eight years into the job, one of the commissioners said to me, Is there anybody you'd like to work for? I said, Yes. I said, I wouldn't mind working for that bloke. Tony Ayres, he seems to know what he's on about and have a good reputation. And John Taylor, who's the commissioner, said, uh, right, I'll fix that for you, I'll ring Tony. And uh, uh, two days later, he called me up and he said, oh, he, he won't have you. Ayres won't have you. And I said, oh, that's a bit of a blow. He said, well, he said to me to tell you that you've never delivered a bottle of milk. I said, right. And I walked away thinking, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> I figured out what he was saying was, you spent all your life in a central personnel agency. You, even though I'd been out doing other jobs, but I belonged to the central personnel agency. So you need to go out and earn your spurs in a line department doing something different to what you've been doing in the central personnel agency. And then in 1984, Sir William Cole left 
uh, as chairman of the Public Service Board, to go and be the secretary of the Department of Defence. And I literally bumped into him uh, at Farmer Brothers, uh, a wine merchant in Monica, when I was buying a bottle of wine for us to go to dinner that night. And Sir William said, was doing the same thing. And he said, oh, Alan, he said, uh, this is an amazing coincidence. He said, uh, Ron McLeod, who was the deputy secretary, uh, he'll be ringing you on Monday. There'll be a job advertised the following Thursday and you will be an applicant. And, and I was, and I got the job. And so I went to the fence 10 years after I joined uh, as, a, as a public servant in the, uh, the Public Service Board. Mr. Reyes noticed that. Two years after I started there, he rang me up. The Prime Minister's got a special job to do. And I'm going to head the unit and you're going to be on it. This is on a Friday. When do we start? Monday. I said, hang on, this, my secretary doesn't know. Uh, oh no, I'll fix all that. You turn up at this place at this time, nine o'clock on Monday. I turned up, there's me and him, and that's it. And I look around and uh, where's the others? He said, oh, uh, my PA will be joining us later in the day. But where it, where the unit? <laughs> so I worked for Tony then for, uh, oh, I suppose it was nine months. Uh, and then I went back to the department, went back to work for Tony in a different department. He came to the fence, I came back to the fence. So it's this, this funny way in which these things work. Very peculiar, very peculiar. So is that how the opportunities for working with uh, the Prime Minister, Paul Keating, he being his chief oh, of staff, is that how yeah. it's going? Well, um, what happened there was, uh, I, I got sent to uh, Melbourne in about, uh, must have been, 1990. My job was to move, I can tell you this now, the Defence Signals Directorate, which was one of the um, central intelligence agencies from Melbourne to Canberra. That's what I was there to do. And I did some other things while I was there too. Anyway, uh, um, then, uh, for reasons which weren't clear to me at the time, but became clear to me later. The then Deputy Secretary of Strategy and Intelligence was a, the most amazing man, Professor Paul Dibb, who is, is still in my mind, the leading commentator on defence and national security issues uh, in Australia. Mm -hmm. He had decided that he would leave defence and uh, go back to academia. And so I was down there to bring defence signals up here, and then probably going to become the head of the defence signals director when this other job opened. I always thought that would be the pinnacle of my career. If I could somehow or other, sometime, get to do that job, it wouldn't get much better than that. Oh. So then these things happen by chance. Mm. Uh, chance plays an enormous part in your career. So you can't sit there and plot, I'll wait till that person moves and I'll get the job because somebody else will parachute someone else sideways into the job. So you've got to really broaden your, your experience and your skills base and what you've got to offer. 
And the other two things that I should mention to uh, whoever it is that might be listening, um, the best thing you can do is to invest in your oral presentation skills. Treat every important oral presentation as if it's your first date with somebody. And really hone your writing skills. And if you can tell somebody what's the matter, what's the issue, how come, why is it an issue, and then most importantly, so what? Why is it an issue and what should we do about it? In one page, you have got an automatic ticket to higher office. Most people are write 10 pages. Mm. No good. One page if you're really good, two if you must. But you've got to set it out like that. What's the issue? Why is it an issue? What should we do about it? And then you've got to write what you think should be done about it. So I'll learn you one lesson in life from that. Um, when, not long after I came back, no, it was the first week after I came back to the fences. Deputy Secretary of Strategy and Intelligence. And Ron McLeod was still there, head of corporate. And he and I turned up early for the meeting. I was always, never be late, particularly when it's someone higher up. I walked into the room. Ron's seated opposite this door. I knew Tony Ears would come through that door uh, right on time. And so I said to Ron, where does Tony sit? He said, right opposite me, walks out the door, sits in that seat. Why? Oh, well, I said, I've got a strategy. I'm going to sit on his left because by the time all you other people have talked about whatever the issue is, I'll be able to formulate in my own mind my response. Ron laughed. He thought, that's a pretty good idea. Tony came in, sat down, um, welcomed me to the department. Then he put this issue on the table. He looked at Ron and then he said, Hawkey, you're the new boy on the block. You tell me what you think. And Ron laughed, of course. So I spent maybe five minutes telling Tony why this was one of the stupidest ideas I'd ever heard in my life. And while I was doing this, the smile on Ron's face was getting bigger and bigger. And I'm thinking, I'm missing something here. I'm missing something. Tony sat there and didn't say a word. Then he said, have you finished? I have, Tony. Good, good, he said. I hear what you're against. Now tell me what you're for. And I was dumbfounded. I could take this apart, but I did not have a solution to the problem. One, that's a mistake I made once in my entire life. You must always have something to offer. And that's why if you can do that in writing, because you'll be judged very heavily on your written work and to a lesser extent on your oral presentations. Okay, love it. And so those are the the ways in which by being able to present yourself orally in a way that was pleasing to the opposite person who were you trying to make an impression on and writing. That's how those other opportunities came about as well? Yes, a, a lot. Um, so I, I developed a wide network of um, 
people. I joined the Institute of Public Administration, which was the professional association. I would go to all their functions. We had graduate functions, so I developed quite a wide network across the public sector. And as I, I ended up chairing a committee called the Management Improvement Advisory Committee, which would look at problems across the public service and offer solutions to our seniors in the system. Right, right. That's what happened. And then, uh, so when I was Deputy Secretary of Strategy and Intelligence, um, I went, I went, I had a lot to do with the Americans uh, over this period of time. And I was actually in Washington in uh, November, I'm trying to think of what, what, when it was, 92 or 93. Um, uh, and uh, I was talking to the, the senior person in the State Department and separately to my senior colleague, these are dep deputies, they're not the heads of the agencies, about uh, a forthcoming visit that uh, President George Bush was making to Australia in January to meet with Prime Minister Bob Hawke. Right. And I, I told both of my interlocutors um, that I thought they should have a plan B because I believed that uh, Hawke would be replaced by Keating uh, before that meeting took place. How did you know that? How did you, like, was there a... I, I, I was just watching what was going on and I thought that could well happen. So I warned them about it and they said, that's not what the embassy is telling us. And I said, well, that embassy might well be right. But what I'm suggesting is you need a plan B. If I am right and that does happen, you need to know um, what you're going to do about it. Well, uh, that happened and two things happened as a result of that. Um, I basically then had unfettered access into the American system through these guys uh, to talk about what I wanted to talk about and get agreement about issues to do with strategy and intelligence. So that, that was a good thing. I'll, I'll come back on one other little issue there too. Then the next thing that happened was I've come home and uh, I'm on family holidays with my wife uh, down in Leighton on the orchard, uh, big orange farm. And the, and the phone rang. I was out probably mucking around with my father-in-law and my mother-in-law came out and said, oh, Alan, you, they're Sicilians. So the you, man on the phone for you. So I came in, I pick up the phone and it's Tony, yes. Tony, what can I leave you? Oh, mate, he said, no, sorry about this. Uh, go and have a shower, get changed, get in your car, drive straight back here, straight to the Prime Minister's office. What do you mean? The uh, Prime Minister wants to talk to you um, about the strategy and intelligence relationship with the United States. I said, oh, okay. So I did. I got booked on the way home, trying to get there quickly. Mm. I walked into Keating's office and I sat down, introduced, he knew who I was, but introduced myself. And uh, uh, I, I sat there and uh, the butler came in with a cup of tea for Paul and a cup of tea for me and I'm sitting there sort of twiddling my thumbs and he starts looking around the room and then he says to me, what are you waiting for? Oh, Prime Minister, I'm waiting for whoever it is that you're going to have at the meeting 
um, to take notes or to be a witness to the meeting. He said, no, no, it's just you and me. He said, I've got my stenographer's handbook here. I'll be writing my own notes. I turned up thinking, 15 minutes, I'll be out of here. An hour and a half, and I was sweating like you wouldn't believe. The questions he asked and the detail he wanted to go into staggered me. Wow. Anyway, I must have passed the test because after that, every so often, his personal secretary, Linda, would bring me up. She'd say, Paul wants to see you. Or we, we developed this funny pattern. Paul wants to see you. When would that be, Linda? Now. <laughs> what's, it, what's it about? I've got no idea. I'd turn up and he'd run something past me. Um, he, he, but he, whenever we met, and I had this relationship with the New Zealand Prime Minister, whenever we met, there was never a witness. So the amount of trust yeah. that he was showing in me, mm. uh, and, uh, I, you know, that was just terrific. But I'll tell you one other little funny story about the American relationship. I went back there. Uh, to see the head of the uh, National Security Agency, a bloke called Bill Gates. And uh, I, I had this tactic of arriving uh, on a Friday night or a Saturday morning because I used to suffer bad jet lag flying to America, not flying back to the sun. So I went to have breakfast Sunday morning um, in this wonderful hotel up in Georgetown, big room. There's four people seated at a table. They brought me in and sat me at the table next to them. I thought, this is a bit odd, you know. Anyway, they're chatting away there and I'm reading this book. When all of a sudden this guy starts talking about what he's going to do up on the hill to prevent Bill Gates's nomination from proceeding through the House of Representatives and the Senate. And I thought, well, this is getting very interesting. I read the same page about 20 times, I think, while I eavesdropped on this conversation. Monday morning, first appointment, nine o'clock, Bill Gates. I walk in, we do the obligatory business and that sort of thing. Lots of people there, including somebody from Foreign Affairs watching me. And uh, as the meeting's finishing, I said, Bill, do you mind if we have a moment alone? Very irregular. Oh, I don't mind. He said, away you go, you blokes. I told him what had happened and I told him who the bloke was. I worked out who the fellow was. And he said, this is gold. This is absolute gold. He said, he's already paranoid about me. I'm going to ring him up. And tell him I know what he's up to. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> the black dropped off like you wouldn't believe. But isn't that amazing how that could happen? There's an Australian sitting there. Well, he'll know nothing about anything. You That's never know who's sitting at the next table. Jeez Louise. Okay, so at this point, at this point, so first of all, let me go back. When you're talking with this guy called Bill Gates, are you the DEPSEC at this point? You're the De Department yes. of of Deputy Secretary, and he's the director of the National Security Agency, okay. a very big wheel. 
Very huge, yes. And at the time when you're going and meeting with ad hoc, with Paul, Prime Minister Paul Keating. Hang on, hang on, look. <laughs> Can you see that? That's the photo of me and Bill Gates at the meeting. Oh my God, so you're the one on the right hand side. You're the one with the dark hair and the beard. <laughs> I had hair. <laughs> Hard to believe, isn't it? <coughs> I, I, I didn't realise I was sitting there actually. Uh, and what's that picture uh, of? Like, what are you guys holding up there? 1991. 1991. Oh, that's. Uh, Sacred squirrel business. Okay, okay, all right, okay, I won't go into it then. But when you, when Paul Keating was asking you to come ad hoc and discuss defence, you two at that time were Department Secretary of Defence. Uh, Deputy Secretary, yeah, Deputy Secretary of Deputy. Strategy and Intelligence. So Deputy Secretary. Okay, so Deputy, you weren't even the Secretary, you weren't even the... the... No, I was number two. So why was a number one being asked to come and have meetings with Paul Keating? Mr Ayres was the Secretary. So why wasn't he being asked to come and have meet with Paul Keating? Why were you? Oh, being because there? I had the subject matter area. Okay, okay. Yeah, not all not all secretaries would have done that. I let let me tell you. Yes, yeah. They would have killed for an opportunity to be in front of the prime minister. Yes. But I had the subject matter experts. Ayers couldn't have known how this was going to work out. That it was just the two of us, or what Keating was going to ask about. Could never have known. Yeah, yeah. And then I used to have these other meetings with. Him. Keating every so often mm. and then I got called over one day and uh, Keating said to me uh, um, I want you to be my chief of staff uh, I was stunned absolutely stunned because um, I didn't think it would work and I don't think it did but let me let me tell you there's a backdrop to this about five years beforehand uh, John Howard who was opposition leader He'd also asked me to be his chief of staff. And Mr. Ayres Mr. said to me, well, you won't be doing that. And he explained to me why. Then I went back after I'd seen Keating. Well, he said, you don't have any option. What do you mean? He said, if a prime minister asks you to do something, you don't have an option, you must do it. I said, but I told the prime minister, I was going to be home and talk to my family about it. Well, yeah, you can. And if you've got any problems, you tell me and I'll tell Maria. <laughs> <laughs> he knew her very well. Um, anyway, so that's what happened. So I went there. I, I, I went there and I lasted six months. Now, that's me. I think I did not have the political gravitas or knowledge to advise him on those issues but I did handle all the rest of the stuff okay. pretty well, I think. But, um, and I learned more about how ministers, cabinet and government works in that six months than I'd learned in the, whatever it was, 20 yeah. something years before then. And that really served me in good stead later on. 100%. So Alan, just to dive in here, Chief of Staff, and just to explain it to my audience members, you basically, you're controlling the schedule of the Prime Minister, who comes, sees him, who doesn't, you're just... No, no, no that was Linda. Linda, can, Linda does that. That was his personal secretary. Oh. I, I was his principal policy advisor. Ah, so that's okay. Principal. So I, I would do that. 
But let me just tell you, in the six months I was there, you think about this now. In the six months I was there, we did Marbo, mm. we did the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, Keating established the APEC leaders meeting, we did the return of the unknown soldier uh, from uh, Villas Bretonneux in France mm -hmm. and the reburial on the 11th of November. We won the Olympic Games. Yes. Uh, we did quite a lot of work, a, a reform of um, uh, the United Nations with Abedros uh, Ghali. Uh, they're just a few things yeah. that we did in that six month period. Okay. And you look at people today and the difference is there are prime ministers who have an agenda. Mm -hmm. Hawke, Keating, Howard, Abbott might have, but he didn't do it. So since the 8th of December, 2006, Australia has been wandering in the wilderness. Every prime minister has not been able to bring an agenda to bear. And mm -hmm. so some people want to be prime minister because they want to do this. Yeah. Others want to be prime minister because they want to be prime minister. They want to be prime minister. Exactly. A hundred percent. And you can see that from a mile away from the public's perspective of what's going on. I want yes. to talk to you more about that, Alan, because who else would be better adjusted to speaking about that than yourself? What kind of a personality was Paul Keating working with him as a boss? Oh, he was uh, wonderful. He, you know, for a guy who left school about the age of 14, yeah. his intellect was absolutely formidable. Yeah. And he taught me something really valuable. I once asked him about why he invested so much of his time in meeting with world leaders. I'll give you a good example of that. When we went to uh, Washington, uh, we were on our way to Seattle for the first APEC leaders meeting, Keating's idea, right, to have this. And he got all these world leaders to agree to do it. And we stopped in on Clinton and Clinton decided he would give a White House lunch uh, for the party. So there were about eight of us uh, on one side of the table, Clinton and his colleagues on the other side. Two and a half hours into the one hour lunch, all these people kept running in, explaining to him, you can't keep going. And he got sick of it. He said, I will decide when the meeting's finished, don't bother me again. Mm. So this went on for an unbelievable period of time. And it's Keating and Clinton um, testing ideas with each other and explaining what they'd done and why they'd done it. But it was the most incredible thing. And uh, then at the end of it, we had a, a, a little press conference outside. And I said to Paul, why do you invest so much time in this? And he said, look, once you've met somebody face to face and you've established a relationship with them, it's so much easier to pick up the phone and discuss difficult issues with them. Lovely. So relationships are fundamental. Yeah, 100%. Were you ever uh, pinching yourself, thinking, dear Lord, I'm in this position, I get to be pretty? I did. I did, yeah. I mean, I thought it was just extraordinary. And that six months basically set up uh, the rest of my career. Wow. I, went, I went back 
from there uh, to the Prime Minister's department uh, to do a special job for three months, at the end of which I became Secretary of uh, Veterans Affairs. And that, that was um, interesting too, because um, when Keating gave that speech at the reinterment of the reinterment of the Australian unknown soldier, um, you wouldn't believe the pandemonium that broke out. There was absolute silence in the office while he was, and quite a few tears, mm. best speech by any Australian ever. And it's on the left-hand side wall as you walk in uh, to the Hall of Memory where the term is. Mm. My father rang me and he said, you know, I don't much like your bloke, but that's the best speech I've ever heard and it's the best thing anybody's done for the ex-service community for a long period of time. He was a return Second World War person. Mm. And when I got the job in Veterans Affairs, he rang me up. I just want to let you know, son, the veteran community has high expectations of you oh, wow. and what you will be delivering for us. Wow. And I started there the day before Anzac Day. Yeah. Now, if someone's not sending you a message then, You'd have to say, nobody ever sends you a message. Yes, 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 yeah. Oh, that's that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. But geez, Louise, the responsibility on your shoulders now because your father is looking on you because you are going to now hold up the, the, the whole policy of what's going to happen to veterans around Australia based on yep. your decisions. It's huge. Yep. What a so, privilege to be in that position. What an absolute privilege. It was, it what was, a, yeah. And so... Uh, so it's something that very interesting you said before, and the fact that I just want to take you back that Hawke, Howard, Paul Keating, these all prime, previous prime ministers of Australia, they all had an agenda. When you say yeah. agenda, do you mean like a vision for what they wanted to? Oh yes, 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 that's right. Paul was driven by every initiative. Uh, his vision for Australia was in and with Asia. Right. That was Australia's future. Oh. Everything that came up, how does this fit mm. with the picture? Mm. And if it didn't, take it away. Oh, brilliant. And give it to a minister or somebody. It's not part of what, it's not part of what I'm here to do. That's, did anyone so that's, why, that's why he led Marbo personally. You, oh. you may not know this, but he ran it with that group of 10 Aboriginal leaders, um, and we used to meet with them for a long period of time to go through this. That was Keating by himself. There were advisors, but he attended every meeting, he chaired every meeting, and he developed um, the solution to Marbo through all of that. And, and so why was he, is he because he wanted to give voice to the Indigenous people in Australia, is that why? Yeah, he, he, he fundamentally believed that this was a part of Australia's history that needed to be dealt with. Oh my God, I just get um, goosebumps just for you, you saying that. And, and just what you've experienced and the ease that you have had in these meetings and to be present to these things, um, it's just extraordinary. Did anyone ever question them, or Keating, on his vision of, are you crazy about doing this with Mungo, or are you crazy putting Australia, your vision within the... the, the uh, within the Asian continent? Like, did anyone ever question a prime minister? Oh, yeah. People would question. People would. He, he accepted. He liked that. 
because that would help him hone okay. his thinking about things uh, and why he wanted to do it and his determination to do it. Right. Uh, so he was, he was very strong about this and uh, um, just a wonderful example of how you go about it. Yeah, yeah. Did you learn a lot from his leadership style and the way he dealt with people and confrontation and conflicts? And yes, I think I did. Yeah. And, and how to make things work. How to make things work. And what, what did you learn from that? Like, and when you say how to make things work, give me an example and what, you, what lesson well, you Well, the relationships one is a key one, okay. right? Um, be across your brief. Make sure you absolutely know your brief. Mm -hmm. Don't guess. Mm -hmm. Don't guess. Don't say that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You have to know. And if you don't know, say you don't know. And but I'll go away and find out. Mm -hmm. so you can't finesse these things. You've got to be absolutely straight. I love it. How much time? How much did you have a personal life when you were chief of staff at that level? Uh, uh, my wife would say no. Yeah. Um, you know, there were sort of eighteen-hour days. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, but six months, eighteen hours a day. Uh, wouldn't have had the rest of my career if I hadn't have done it. She was very forgiving. Oh. about it and I got called to do a couple of things. She worked in environment. Okay. So I got called to do a few things in the environment area with uh, Ros Kelly, who was the minister, oh. uh, which was a bit of a payoff for mm -hmm. her. So if somebody's listening to this and, and someone would think, wow, I would love to become like you, part of a prime minister's inner circle, be his chief of staff, be, how would you would you guide someone to be in a position where they would be nominated or picked? Like what? position would they need to be in? Well, I, I always say to um, um, young, talented people uh, that they would benefit for a period of time in a, in a ministerial office as a departmental liaison officer or whatever. But if they want to do that, they should read a book by Alan Bean. It's called Say so You Want to Be a Chief of Staff. That's the best thing I can tell you about that. Okay. Uh, because mine happened a bit differently to what some others might be. Okay, all right. Tell me, in your experience, um, and we're going to talk about, obviously, you being the Chancellor of the Australian National University and Commissioner to New Zealand, is it from where you're sitting right now, like in this point in your career, is it more important what you know or who you know? I think it's a bit of both, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't get to where you get to unless you've got the what you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? That's your entry ticket to playing the game. Okay. Then those people, those sponsors, those who you know, and you will often never, I never found out something until 15 years afterwards that this person had done something for me. Oh. He never told me for 15 years. Oh. And he told me when we were having a game of golf one day. And I just, I was stunned by it. I, I often wondered what had happened but I didn't know mm. that he was the person who did it. Oh, fantastic. So, um, yeah. Right. Okay, so now you're Chief of Staff um, and then you, you, you're there for six months. That's incredible enough. Yep. And then you go and you become High Commissioner to New Zealand. No, no, I went to Veterans Affairs, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Secretary of Transport, um, then Defence. Then I got sacked from Defence and went, I got exiled to New Zealand as... Uh, Why did you get sacked in defence? Oh, because I didn't agree with the minister. Oh, 
Which brings me to a very important question. Okay, this is really, I used to work in immigration. I used to work for the Department of Immigration, a very short time. Um, and one of the things that I remember from there is that the fact that the policies that would come out and, that, and procedures that would have, would have to put into place to support those policies weren't exactly what everyone would agree with on the ground, those people. And so yeah. some people would speak up, some people would not. If you spoke up, well, then you would be ostracized. And if you did speak, if you didn't speak up, well, then you just go with the flow. So in this instance, you're experiencing the same thing in defense. You didn't agree with the minister. You speak up, is that correct? And then you get... Yep. I told him I wouldn't do mm. any of the three things he wanted me to do. And I told him why. And then what he did was he waited until the Prime Minister Howard was in London mm -hmm. and, and had it announced on the radio without the Prime Minister knowing. Oh, wow. Can, can you say... say so, what, was, uh, what, what was that? Yeah. So that, that was, uh, I, I can't, it was October uh, 2002 when he, when he did this. Anyway, uh, very interesting uh, because he didn't last much longer either because of what he did. He, he would not have known that the Prime Minister had told me that he was very happy with what I was doing and would I take an extension of my appointment? And I said yes. Yeah. But then if it wasn't for John Howard, I wouldn't have become... I wouldn't have become High Commissioner to New Zealand. Okay. He, he did that. Right. So that was very good for me. But I'll tell you a good story about that. Are we going okay on time here? Yeah, yeah go yeah. for it. Fantastic. So I turned up in New Zealand with uh, my letter. It's a letter of introduction from one Prime Minister to the other. That's the way they do it in Commonwealth countries. Right. In non-Commonwealth countries, you present your credentials to the Governor-General or the, the Head of State. So I turned up to meet uh, the formidable Prime Minister, Helen Clark, Why? opposite the persuasion to John Howe. We have the obligatory photo uh, with the letters, Peyton, and uh, she goes and sits down. She's got three people from the department on the left, three people from her private office on the right. And she says to me, is there anything you'd like to say, High Commissioner? As a matter of fact, there is, Prime Minister. It's wonderful to come to a country that knows how to put women in their place. Oh, she big pause. Oh. Big, big pause. The, the, the other people who were there at the table were gripping the table. Little, little smile on Helen's face and she do go on, High Commissioner. I said, well, you must know, Prime Minister, um, Chief Justice, Head of the Supreme, uh, uh, Chief Justice, Head of the Supreme Court, the Governor General, Prime Minister of the country, Speaker of the House, and Dean of the Diplomatic Corps, the only Western nation ever to have had five women in the order of precedence. She laughed. She said, we'll get along all right. <laughs> and we did. She was here a couple of months ago and asked me to go and have dinner with her, with, with our partners. Um, so she was here, coming through Canberra. Wow. And so we went to dinner together and reminisced over a few things, but always when I needed to see her, her chief of staff was sitting on her right-hand side. <coughs> and I would ring her, Heather Simpson. I'd ring her and say, I need to see the Prime Minister. She never, ever asked what about. Right. When would you like to do it? I said, the next week. 
Once I said today. Good, right, okay, I'll ring her back. She rang me back, she said, Prime Minister's giving a speech at the Cape Town. She'll meet you there 15 minutes before the speech. Is that long enough? Yep. Take us five minutes. There was never anyone there when I met with her. And we would discuss it. We'd agree what what would happen. And that's what happened. That's wonderful. Brilliant. That's absolutely... It just showcases your smarts as well. Like, it really does. That situation just opens you up to how you've really introduced yourself to the Prime Minister of New Zealand at the time, which was female Helen Clark. And was that uh, not a strategy, but was that used from an experience that you've had with Paul Keating, how he sat with Clinton that time? Probably. I mean, I, I, sometimes I, leadership is what you do sometimes when you don't know what to do. <laughs> say that again, say that again, say that again. Leadership is what you do sometimes when you don't know what to do. So in the spur of the moment, what happens in that spur of the moment? That's what. Yeah, where does it come from? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Oh, I love that. I love that. So you leave Department of Defence, you go and become high UN High Commissioner. What's that experience like to be an ambassador for Australia? Like for someone who's like has no idea, what what is that experience like? Well, I thought it was wonderful. So what I did uh, uh, immediately after uh, uh, my, you know, I became the High Commissioner. Uh, I went and gave a, a, a speech at the Institute of International Studies. Right. Said to them, you know, here I am, this is me. This is what I'm going to do over the next three years. I told them what I was going to do. And every 12 months I went back and reported on what I'd done against the things I told them. And then I gave, uh, you know, the farewell speech after the nearly the third year about... This is what I've achieved on my watch. Mm. I had this list of things that I kept working on. What was your goal as, as ambassador to Australia? What was your goals as the High Commissioner between Australia and New Zealand relations? Well, one of them was to uh, um, <laughs> one of them was to get Australia and New Zealand to wake up to the fact that the ANZAC relationship was disappearing. And uh, I I once said to John Howard, the only item in John Howard's diary every year without fail was a meeting, face-to-face meeting, with the Prime Minister of New Zealand. And um, he he revolutionised the uh, Pacific Island Forum. Helen Clark was the chair. John Howard did all the work. And I was heavily involved in that. But I said to Howard on one occasion after we'd had a dinner, tell me, uh, PM, how do you go about working on the no-go issues in the relationship? Mm. He said, I don't. What I do is I find the common ground Mm. and work really hard on the common ground so that we can advance the relationship uh, with the things that we both agree need to be done. There's another little lesson. And I've got one more for you. You you mentioned uh, what happened uh, in immigration uh, when you were there. So when I I went back to Defence as Secretary (coughs) in October 1999, it would actually have been (coughs) relatively easy for me 
to assume what needed to be done and do it. But what I did was there were 220 military and civilian people in the senior echelon. And so uh, I decided with a colleague I'd work with, we'd take these people 30 at a time for half a day at a time to answer those questions. What's the matter? How come? So what? And I told them it was compulsory to attend. They, they, they couldn't get out of it. You had to do it. And they all did. And then we collected all that. And I turned it into my 100-day due diligence diagnosis. And I gave a speech at the press club. This is, this is what's wrong with defence. This is what we're going to do about it. And uh, I... I, I um, uh, and anyway, um, then I went overseas for a very short period to do something I had to do, came back, went straight into uh, what was called a retreat with those same senior people, 220 people, down in Wollongong. And I said, we're going to revisit those sessions and what you told me. And they were furious with me because I, I had mentioned that they'd developed learned helplessness to an art form. Mm. And so we went through all this about, this is what we're going to do to renew the organisation. And we went through that every six months. We would get together, do the next part of the jigsaw, where we'd go next six months, come back, do the next part of the jigsaw. And the same thing, I learned that in New Zealand. Um, and, and doing this every 12 months. Um, I would give a speech about what we did, where we're at, what needs to happen now. So they all knew right. what I stood for, but they were all involved. Mm. I'll tell you how I did that. First thing we did after this speech in February was to get together in June. So we're up at the showgrounds in Canberra. And I said, well, the first thing we're going to think about is What's the mission of defence? What are we here to do? Why do we exist? Groups of 10. Why you go? Tell me what it is. So back they all come. We get, gather them all up and we put them... Uh, uh, we, we, we sort of took the top 10. You just do a frequency analysis, but we didn't tell them. We didn't put them in the order, the frequency analysis. Then I said... This thing in front of you here. You're going to vote. You each get one vote. You pick which one of the ten you want to vote for. So away they go. By the way, see those numbers down in the bottom right hand side of the screens around you? They're all the people who haven't voted. Oh. And if you turn, if you turn your machine over, you'll see the number on the back whether or not, and if you haven't voted, your number's up there. And I've got the list. I didn't have the list. Only ever happened once. These are sometimes passive aggressive people or people who don't want to be involved. But they were involved from then on. And so then that work still exists to defend Australia and its national interests. 
The values still exist. The vision still exists. After all that work we did in 99, 2000, 20 years later, yeah. people sometimes accost me in the street or at social function and remind me. Mm -hmm. So you've got to take them with you. Yes, yes. And I had other ways of doing that. Anybody could, anybody could email me. Anybody. And they'd get an answer. Wow. So you got to, and I would have brown bag lunches so that Chief of the Defence Force and I would meet with 20 people over lunch. Tell us what you want to tell us. Ask us any question. And occasionally you'd find out that one functional area wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Mm. You'd ring up the head of the outfit and say, look, I know what you're telling me, but this is what your, we, th these were anonymous, the people were never identified. Mm. This is what your people are telling me. Who am I to believe? Mm. And they'd get on it. And then I measured them through uh, staff attitude surveys. This is all very interesting. When I was in, in, in government, and it was a very short time that I was there, it was just such, um, and I'll and say the, the, the big head poncho of who we were reporting to, and to be honest, this was very obvious and very evident, only ever cared about her own KPIs. Only, <laughs> and we would have meetings and we would have training days so she could tick off her performance review. And she would say that, it wasn't us assuming, it was, we're doing this because I had to do it for my KPIs. It wasn't to do with immigration policy. It wasn't to improve her staff. It was for her to look. And that was the experience of many people around me in government. When, like you said, there was no agenda. There was no vision. It was just, I'm in this position because, well, I'm in this position. I just scored it. Yep. Well, that, you know, um, that's worried me for a long period of time, mm. including the fact that um, some of the worst offenders mm. are the most popular among the ministry and get promoted and revered and yet they are shocking people they're i call them narcissistic sociopaths yep 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 how how would you get rid of stuff like that how do you like in your experience of government how do you give value to those who really are earning it and not to these ones who just are there for the sake of the title or the job or the prestige well um you will have heard you may have heard the term high-performing organisations. Mm. Now, very few people that I know have ever defined what that means. So I have a definition of what it means. Mm -hmm. And so what I do with my staff engagement scores, first of all, the percentage of people who respond, that's one indicator. The measures against each of the high-performing organisation factors, these are Australian high-performing organisation factors and that, not from anywhere else, they're Australian. Mm -hmm. And the last column is the percentage of people in that work area who believe that something is going to be done about the findings. And then what I do is, by name, not position, we assign responsibility to the functional heads by name. These are your results. I want to know, I want to see your plan about what you're going to do between this and this survey and the next one mm. to improve the ratings and lift the whole organisation up. Mm. Mm. Holistic, 
very holistic. Most, most of them, most, most of these sociopaths, they won't measure anything because they know what's going to happen. <laughs> and the Public Service Commissioner, if he was serious about his job, he would be doing this yeah. and holding these leaders to account. Yeah. So why don't they? Like you've been in the you you've been in the inside. Why I don't know. I don't know why they don't. Okay. All right. So it's, it's an easy thing to do, but it it's reinforces accountability and responsibility. Yeah. They talk it all, but they don't actually do it. Do you think? Do you think, Alan? Because before we were talking about the fact that current prime ministers have lost this direction of having an agenda, a vision, and then. Yeah. Do you think it comes from that down? It, it might. I, I haven't given a lot of thought to that. But fundamentally, I mean, you need to know your purpose, what you're there to do. You need a set of values, and you have to hold people to account for that. But if you're going to, I have this saying, if you're going to set the standard, mm. if you're going to be exemplar, the role model mm. for others, mm. You must have a vision. And you can never, ever achieve your vision. It demands that you continue to work to a higher and higher level of performance. Mm, absolutely. No complacency. And you've got to measure it. How, how did you, um, how did, which, which job did you find easier, being Chief of Staff or UN High Commission? Oh, the High Commissioner job was a, a dream by comparison. <laughs> Because I heard it's being an ambassador is quite a not a cushy job, but it's a very um, well, like it's it's a I don't know it's it's a great it's a it's a great gig to have. It's a, it's one of those great gigs. I went the length and breadth of New Zealand, talking about the nature of the relationship, talking about my agenda, yeah. that agenda that I outlined, and and what did we need to do yeah. to improve this. Do you get any training when you become ambassador? Like this, like as is this? Oh well, maybe um, they give you. Uh, you get the, the foreign affairs version, right? But uh, when you're someone like me, you, you're going to do what you're going to do anyway. So <laughs> they they have, they have to put up with that. So uh, yeah, interesting. Do you think that's one of the shining qualities you had that attracted both Paul Keating and Howard to you? I don't really know. I've never had a conversation with John Howard about it. Mm. Um, I, I did a lot of work for John Howard in the last part of my career, including a special job for him, right. uh, which he wanted me to do. And so I, it, that took me six months before I could actually go to New Zealand. And then I turned up in New Zealand uh, about a week or a fortnight before he came to the Pacific Island Forum. Right. And, and that was delivered in spades. To the extent that at the end of the meeting, he was then to fly to uh, uh, back to Wellington where we lived uh, to talk to the parliament. And he invited me on his private plane, me and my wife on the private plane. And we sat up the front with them and everybody else sat down the back. That was, that was really interesting. Yeah. Being able to talk to the prime minister and his wife in a confined environment like that over a cup of tea. Was and he had an agenda. He was asking me about things and what did I think and did he have any advice about, you know, who he should target, how I go about it. Yeah. He, he was a 
Hand was an amazing man in so many ways. Really? Really? Because, I mean, only because I, I don't recall much of his time. I was, I mean, I was in primary school when he was in power, so I wasn't very privy to it. Would, when you compare Howard and Keating, two different... And I'm all Howard and Hawk. Howard's more like Hawk. Chairman of the... Really? Yes. Much more so than Keating. Keating's a maverick. Oh. Keating's a maverick. These two, uh, they chaired a cabinet and and brought them all along. Keating would often have ideas, um, you know, where he would drive them to it, whether they agreed or not. So but a very powerful personality. Howard, you're saying Howard was a powerful personality? No, no, Keating was a very powerful personality. Howard and Hawke operated more by consensus, but there was one occasion, I can't tell you the details, where I was at a meeting, and uh, all of the uh, cabinet committee meetings disagreed with the idea, all of them. Then the Prime Minister asked the officials who were present what they thought. So um, they're all disagreed. One didn't say a word. Um, then it got to another one, and I thought, hmm, something interesting going on here. And then I was last. I said, what do you think, Alan? I said, I agree with him. And the PM said, so do I. And there was stunned silence in the room. And I could see these ministers in their own mind were writing down, I was at this critical cabinet meeting and I told the Prime Minister we shouldn't do it. That's what they were doing. Mm. It turned out to be a brilliant stroke of politics, absolutely brilliant. Mm. And they all had to reinvent. Well, I was there. And I told one of them, yeah, I know you were there and I know what you said. <laughs> did, did you ever want to be get involved in politics and run to... Uh, uh, why, uh, why is that? Uh, I'd rather just go around achieving things that I think oh. are important. Without, If you're in politics, you're on show 24-7. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the media are all over you. Mm. It's an impossible position. Yeah. Yes, very hard. You know, just impossible. I, I, I don't know why they do it. It's too hard. Okay. I mean, the toll that it takes on one's own family, I mean, you yourself, yes, but the, the people, the kids, the wife, the husband. Yeah, the impact. Impact, yeah. No wonder there's so many, you know, there's a lot of marital breakdowns and yeah. things that happen because of the hothouse atmosphere of the yeah. parliament and the, yeah. and the way they live. It, it, I Not imagine, I could just I totally imagine. Do you, do you find that um, when you talk about different strategies, current, if we look at the current climate with the current prime minister at the moment, Scott Morrison, his, his decision to leave Australia during the bushfires, um, obviously that was a really bad decision. And you know Keating, you know Howard, and you may have known Hawke from a distance. Would they have stayed or would they have gone on holidays? I, I knew Hawke very well. Same name. Okay. Um, same family origins. Oh, really? We've never made the link, but we're not, we come from the same part of England in um, uh, down near Penzance. Okay. Um, and I used to occasionally say, I spoke on a number of forums with Bob, and uh, we were very matey. And uh, I often, I, I said once the thing, well, he's a pirate, not me, and he laughed. He, he's a wonderful man. But um, they're, they're all different 
characters um, in, in their own right. But, but wonderful people. They would never have left. John Howard used to go to the same place for his holidays every year, uh, up at um, near Kempsey. Oh, wow. Uh, he did that while he was Prime Minister as well. And they would not have been away from Australia. Mm. Um, but to be fair, Morrison agreed that he shouldn't have done it. And I think, okay, I shouldn't speak for Morrison, but I think he was thinking about getting his wife and his children, young children, yeah. out of the spotlight. Yeah. I, I reckon that's what drove him. Yeah. I would tell him not to do it, but he didn't. Um, but he, it's, it's quite legitimate that what he's doing in terms of, he reacts to events yeah. and he handles events. That's how he does it. So he's, he's, he's the second type of prime minister. More offense. Like he's more of the defence kind of leader and not the offence, not anticipating. Do you know yep. what I mean? Well, once he gets hold of an issue, he's pretty good on offence. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, no, look. It's just, it was just the, the bushfires in Australia was such a huge, I mean, it engulfed all of Australia and it was such a huge deal and that was a moment of, I don't know, there was a lot of, a lot of people who had lost a lot uh, and even if you hadn't lost, just looking outside, it was very scary. Uh, and that's when leadership is really needed. But like you said, that the fact that he wanted to take his family and himself away from the spotlight actually like, backfired. It gave, there was more spotlight on him and his family than ever before in that moment, um, which, which is an interesting. That's why I wanted your opinion. Um, but after... There was, I can't remember, um, Rita, but there was a guy who said, these are what's called moments of truth. Yeah. Mm. Quite an interesting comment. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you interpret that moments of truth? And moments of truth of the prime minister's ability to to lead, or a moment of truth for as a nation of seeing who? Right. Morrison will never do that again. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh my goodness. He learned his lesson. Yeah. And that's a sad thing because being in that kind of high-profile role, your mistakes, your failures, so quote unquote, are highlighted, and everybody has an opinion and. It's just about overcoming that. When you then finished up from New Zealand High Commission and then you went in retirement to become the Chancellor of the Australian National University, how did that happen? Huh. Um, you know, I'm the only graduate of the Australian National University ever to be Chancellor. Wow. Yeah. Oh. That's something, isn't it? Um, so, uh, that's, I don't think I can answer that question because that decision would have been taken by the, the then Vice-Chancellor Ian Chubb and the then Council. The Council was chaired by a wonderful man called Peter Bone, who was an ex-Liberal Party minister, outstanding person, outstanding health minister, yeah. um, wonderful man. So I don't know how I got the job, but um, uh, it, it was a wonderful job for a few years and then I got... And I, I just couldn't go on with it because I had so much else that I had to do that I couldn't. So I just did a three-year stint and I did what I thought I could do in the three years. I thought, well, I don't want to do three years twice, same three years twice. Yeah. I've done what I think I could do here and let somebody else have a go at it and I'll go on and do these other things. So you were tapped on the shoulder to come and fill the spot of violence? Yes, I, yes. I got invited over to talk to the Vice-Chancellor about whether I'd be prepared to take the job on. Okay. And and what is what is the role of a Chancellor, other than just being there in graduation? Chairman of the board. 
chairman of the chairman board. Chairman of the board. Yeah. Okay, all right. And you're steering the university's vision, right? Yeah, that that was a big part of it mm. uh, with the vice chancellor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. You know, the chairman and the CEO relationship mm. is the critical relationship whenever you have those two positions. Right. Okay. And what was your vision for AIM, Australian National University when you were Chancellor? What did you want to accomplish? I want, I, this is where I honed that idea about set the standard. We will be the best mm -hmm. at what we do. Not only in Australia, but in world rankings. Okay, right. That's, that's what I drove them. And I gave a number of speeches about how you unpack that, what it means. Right, right. Okay. If, you want to, if young people today want to know what it means, they should watch that Michael Jordan show. The, the show on Netflix, his documentary. Yes, yes, yes. He set the standard and nobody else has matched him ever since. Mm. I wouldn't have done it his way. Okay. And Australians wouldn't take to the way he did it. Mm. But he did it. Okay, okay. All right. That's fascinating. That's I have another example, a relation of mine called Heather Blundell, Heather Blundell Mackay, world's cross champion. Probably, you know, arguably the world's greatest sporting person that's ever lived. And most Australians have never heard of her. What she did was would be the equivalent of, say, winning 16 Wimbledons in a row. If she'd done that, they'd know who she was. Yeah. She won 16 world championships in a row. So why is it that we don't know about her? Well, squash, I think, was, you know, wasn't such a... It's not such a big sport now. Mm. She came in when it started. It was big for a long period, and that's when she was at the top. Okay. Okay. All right. With your, you've been a recipient of some first prestigious awards, the Centenary Medal recipient and the highest civilian honour, which is the Order of Australia. Um, do they, you get tapped on the shoulder for that? Do you apply for that? Is there an application? No, no. The, centenary, <laughs> the Centenary Medal was decided by Prime Minister Howard. Right. And, and that was to celebrate the Centenary of Federation. Right, right. That's where that came from. Oh. Uh, I can't, I can't there was a limited number of them. Mm. And then the, uh, the award in the Order of Australia is decided by a council, the Order of Australia Council. Okay. Uh, decides on, there's four different award, levels of award, and they decide on, on who, who gets them. But you don't know. I don't know who nominated me. Mm. I don't know who my referees were. It's all really kept very close. Mm. They don't tell you. And then the Governor-General, uh, Quentin Rice, put on a dinner for us afterwards. He, there was about 30 of us at the dinner. It's the most wonderful thing. Oh, wow, that's very special. Very special. Yeah, it was special. But particularly because recognition of my wife as well. Oh, wonderful, yes. And, and I was so lucky. She, she invited my daughter and my... Uh, to be son-in-law oh. to the dinner. And that was pretty special for me. Very special. Oh, that's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Was your father, um, was your father proud of you? Like, was he around to? No, they, they weren't, none, none of them were alive. Oh, okay. I'll tell you one of the great privileges I had in life. Mm. I have two brothers and uh, my wife has seven siblings. Mm. I gave the eulogy at both of my parents' funerals and both of her parents' funerals. 
by, on request by her parents. Oh, my goodness. That's an amazing tribute. Like, I'm very proud of that. That's gorgeous. That's, it's a testament to your character, Alan. Really, that's really what, what it shows. It's a testament to the character of the trust that people have in you, in your family, most importantly, and also to leaders of Australia. Can I ask you, when Keating, and this came to mind, when Keating would ask you to come for meetings and there would be no witnesses and it would just be you and him, what do you feel allowed it was were did you develop within yourself that allowed someone to build that much trust in you a, a leader of a country to have meetings with you and not have anyone else to to be around to be a witness to that what was it do you think in you that allowed someone to have that level of trust in you i was always going to tell him my view i'll give you a good example yeah. um, we, we had a we had a, um i walked in one day and he said um um, what do you think about the F-111s? Well, you know, because you never know where Paul's going to go. Wonderful aeroplane, Prime Minister. They can do this, they can do that. Um, this much is in the public arena. This other stuff that they do um, is not in the public arena. That's highly classified. And very few people know the real capabilities of this aeroplane. Mm -hmm. And um, oh, I said, that's, that's good to hear. He said, um, I agree with you. Now he said, uh, I think we should buy some more. And I sort of paused and I said, what did you have in mind? He said, 24. I said, six. He said, 18. I said, 12. Right, we're agreed on 15. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and can you do it? Can you do it? Now, this is this relationships. Those same two people that I dealt with mm -hmm. uh, at the end of that year, 1991, mm -hmm. I rang them up. I, in a particular order, I rang the State Department bloke first. And I said, um, this is what we want to do. He said, oh, Jim, um, you need to ring Jim in the Pentagon. I said, yeah, but first thing he's going to say to me is I'll have to check with, with you, Rich. And uh, he said, you tell him that uh, I've agreed and uh, he can check with me if he wants to. So I ring this guy up. He said, I don't see a problem with that. He said, uh, 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 this will be the price. This is how we'll do it. We'll throw in the logistics package. You send um, somebody over who can pick out the ones that you want. There was done. Wow. Too good. Yeah. Well, great investment. Yeah, no, that's a great investment, but you always speak your mind and that's where we're coming to. You were never scared that you didn't want to please the prime minister or the person in office or the person. You didn't people please. That wasn't your style. No, my, my, I was there to tell them what I thought. Mm. Now, there's an interesting lesson. You can tell somebody twice mm. that you don't agree. Mm. If they still want to stick to the decision, your job is to do it. Okay. You can't tell them a third time, twice. And if you're going to disagree with your boss, there must be no witnesses. You can never disagree with your boss in front of other people. Right. It'll kill you. <laughs> but it didn't kill you when you disagreed with the Minister of Defence and then you got put into... I got sacked. What's it? But then you got a better gig, you got a better role, you got became ambassador to New Zealand, and that's even better. Yeah, well, not not really, not, not equal on a par. Okay. But I was 
I was trying to do a job in defence, right. and I don't think I finished it. Okay. I was three years into what I regarded as a seven-year turnaround. Right. And I can prove that it didn't happen because if I go back and look at that press club speech mm. in on the 17th of February 2000, mm. right, I remember that, and then I look at the first principles review, which they did five years ago, it's the same thing. It's never been... Lots of the things I did, they're still there. Okay. The building blocks are there, but we have not had somebody who can fix the issues. Yeah. So, so just going back to your point there, if you disagree with your boss twice and the third time they still want to press ahead and the third time you go and do it, then how is it that you didn't apply that philosophy with the, with the defence minister at the time? No. Well, because um, <laughs> I had different instructions from the Prime Minister. Uh... Right. And I told him. Mm. I told him that. Okay. And he said, I asked him, have you discussed with the Prime Minister? Oh, no, I couldn't do that. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So you, excellent, you've got these honours, you've got these awards. You're part of 25 Australians on the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia Leadership Council. What does that mean? Well, um, it, it's like um, a group of um, old grey-headed men and women who, who've, uh, you know, been through the wars, know a bit about leadership, leading organisations, know a bit about what are the issues confronting Australia yeah. and how should, what should CETA be doing mm -hmm. to address these issues for the economic development and advancement of Australia. Mm -hmm. And we meet once or twice a year. Uh, for a few hours, uh, and the um, CEO of CEDA talks about their research and policy plan, and we have input into it. We occasionally discuss particular issues and the angles that should be pursued on those issues wow. um, and how they should go about this. Climate change might be an interesting example of that. Mm, okay, okay. So you guys meet up and then you take your findings and your discussions to government or to any department? I know CEDA does. We'll yeah. All of our stuff in, in okay. conference stays in the room. Fantastic, okay. And so you're also on the board of the Raiders, Chairman, sorry, Chairman of the Raiders Club in, in Canberra. How did that yeah. come about? And what does that mean to be Chairman? What are you doing to be a Chairman? What does the, the job consist of doing? Well, um, the most important thing that the chairman of the board can do is hire and fire the CEO, mm. right? But in this case, it's two. Hire and fire the CEO, hire and fire the coach. Mm. Okay. Right? Then you've got what you... My view is the board's job is to get rid of all the things that stop them from managing the way they want to manage it. A lot of management is making it harder for people to do things that they're there to do. Our job is to remove those things so that they've got a clear line of sight with the objective and how to go about it. Some boards interfere in player recruitment uh, and retention. Mm. Uh, my view of the board, that's not the board's job. Uh, the, the, the coach will uh, live or, or fail, depending on their ability to identify uh, talent, to bring them to us and then to develop that talent into a team, talent of, you know, a group of talented individuals into a team 
because the team will be more powerful than a group of talented individuals. So we look after the money, uh, uh, some of the marketing, uh, who supports us, community aspects, or corporate sponsors, all of those sorts of things, which provide the wherewithal for the CEO and the coach to get on and do their job. Okay. Okay. We meet about once a month during the season. And at the end of the year, we have a big review um, about what, what happened during the course of the year and what sh should we be doing to go forward. Do you enjoy private sector, apart from the income of private sector being more than government, which sector do you enjoy the most, private or government? Private sector is much easier. Oh, yeah? Why, why is that? Because it's driven by the profit motive. Mm. Uh, the public sector is much more nuanced and much more difficult okay. because you have competing imperatives a lot of the time. Yeah. And so you have to try and identify what's the national interest in this and how do we go about that. And then you've got to convince your superiors up the tree yeah. that that's what you should be doing. You're often arguing against internal people in the public service and so-called experts from outside. Yeah. consultancy firms and the others who have a view about what's in their best interest rather than sometimes Australia's national interest. How do you deal with internal office politics? How have you dealt with it your whole life? Because I personally hated it, which is why I left it. I just found it absolutely ghastly and a waste of space and time and energy and I didn't want to be part of it. So I completely left it. How do you deal with it, being someone who wants to be in that space? How do you deal with politics internally both private and government? By ignoring it and getting people to focus on what they're there to do. But how, if your superiors are within the polit political little dichotomy within the organisation? Yeah. Oh. You have to find ways of how you have your say and how you can influence mm. what's going to happen. Often, um, the influencer might be a person on the private office staff mm -hmm. uh, or a particular minister who will have more than their fair share, um, say on a particular thing. So you have to find ways of influencing the people around where the decisions are going to be made. Okay. All right. Just looking around it. Um, I've got to say, you're also president of ACT Bernardo's. <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> I, 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 had, I had to stop doing that and a couple of other things because I just have, don't have enough time with the other. Uh, my next five-year plan... Yes. means I don't have time for some things, so I've had to get rid of them. So what's your vision for the next five years? Like, what, are you, what are you wanting to accomplish? Five books. Write books? Five of them, yeah, five. Fantastic. And why, what's, what's brought on that, that yearning? Oh, that's just part of my next, next phase of my life. Okay. That's where I'm at now, so I can do what I want to do largely. I'm financially independent Fantastic. and enjoy time with my grandkids and, and uh, write what I want to write, oh, subjects nice. I want to write about. Fantastic, fantastic. So I want to now, I know we've just gone a little bit over time, um, Alan, but what I want to do is I want you to ask a few questions that are called rapid fire questions. Cool. And it's just me asking you a question, whatever comes to mind, the first answer is the right answer. Cool. Okay. What's the one way to get known or noticed for new opportunities that you would recommend? By doing a fantastic job in the job you're in. Wonderful. The hardest part about turning your passion into a profession? The hardest part. 
uh, becoming a subject matter expert? The easiest part of turning a passion into a profession. When you become a subject matter expert, having influence on the decision. Wonderful. If a book or a movie was made about your career, what would the genre be? <laughs> what do you mean by genre? Genre, drama, comedy, romantic, oh. <laughs> thriller. I think, it, I think it would be, uh, uh, who would have imagined a boy from Queanbeyan could do that well? Oh, wow. Love that. So it'll be a George Lazenby could play that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look him up, I'll look him up. One biggest lesson that you would impart on your grandkids, if you had to give one lesson. Be kind to people. Mm, love it. What, where would you go if you were invisible? If I was invisible, where would I go? <laughs> I never thought of that. Uh, I'd, I would um, be invisible in Trump's uh, arena uh, to try and figure out uh, what, what that bloke's all about. I love that. I love it. And then the last question is, fill in the blank, turning a passion into to a... Fill in the blank, turning a passion into a profession is? Getting results through people. Getting results through people. Love yep. it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Alan, you've been an absolute pleasure to have. Thank you for unpacking all that you've been through. I mean, it's been compared to what you've gone through and the journey. I mean, this is just very minute. But for your time and you taking the effort to share with us, thank you so very much. Pleasure. Thank you, Rita. All the best. Thank Keep you. doing what you're doing. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, please share, please comment. Let us know your thoughts and we'll catch you on the very next episode. God bless.